The Lord be with you. It's good to see you all. Uh, the good news uh, that we're proclaiming this morning, friends, is that despite the ways that we break communion and reject love, our Creator refuses to abandon us. That our sin does not provoke God's anger. Rather, our sin and the shame and the suffering that comes in its wake evokes God's compassion. And He comes toward us in love to rescue us, to heal us, and to restore us to communion with Himself and with each other, creating humanity anew in Christ. God has always been responding to our sin like this, and He will continue to do so until He has reconciled all things to Himself in Christ. Amen? We've been in this series, uh, as Matt mentioned earlier, Beginnings and Endings. Um, six Sundays ago it started. Hard to believe. There's a lot to talk about in these first couple chapters of Genesis. Um, and uh, you can go back through uh, and listen to those sermons if, uh, if you've missed some of those. And we're going to continue this series all the way up until Advent. So that's the last Sunday of November. Advent begins the first Sunday of December this year. Um, and today this is the second to last or penultimate if you didn't know that word, now you do. That means second to last. The penultimate uh, sermon on the beginnings part, and then we'll shift into endings. Um, and so this, we're talking about the fall, uh, as we read from Genesis today. Matt next week is going to talk more about the consequences of the fall and how we interpret those things uh, and good news uh, from those things. And then we're going to go to endings. It's going to be fun. Heaven, hell, the end times, uh, resurrection, judgment, salvation, all that uh, fun stuff. We're going to talk, uh, talk through some of those things. Uh, but today, we're proclaiming good news from the fall, <laughs> uh, which is an interesting task. Um, uh, I, ha I have a friend uh, named Peter, uh, lives in Minnesota, and um, he went to work for a missions organization um, a while back, a few years ago, uh, this exciting missions organization. He was excited to go to work for this organization because it was led by a very dynamic leader um, who had some really innovative ideas about just doing good in the world and, you know, the, the mission that this organization was all about. So he moved his family from Minnesota to Boston, where this organization was located. Um, they picked up and, and them and their kids, and um, <clears throat> to make a long story short, they quickly started noticing some problems in this organization. From afar, it looked pretty good in terms of like innovation and, and some really cool stuff happening, but up close, uh, they started noticing some disturbing patterns. There was kind of some toxic leadership patterns going on in the organization. Uh, there was secrecy. There was sometimes outright lying and then denying about the lying. There was bullying. There was manipulation. Uh, there were family members being put into positions of authority that they weren't really qualified for, right? So there's kind of a, some nepotism going on there. There's just all kinds of stuff that uh, Peter started noticing. Um, and so, if ever confronted on this stuff, um, sometimes it was, uh, you know, inevitable. Somebody would say, well, I thought you said this. This leader would always sort of obfuscate, always sort of say, well, no, I never said that, or I didn't mean that, or that's not really how it is, or I'm not, that's not what I'm saying, that's not really what's going on. You guys relate? You know anybody like this? Um, and so, uh, you know, the other thing that this leader would do is try to spin it and make it sound spiritual. Like, well, you know, it's, this is part of, you know, laying down your life for the gospel. You know, that, that kind of a thing was something that got said quite a bit. And this, this whole situation uh, be, came to a head because they lost some funding 
that they had had. And so the, the funding got lost, which, you know, nothing, nothing brings the underlying problems to the surface like money problems, right? It's like once the money's gone, it's like, all right, everything else comes up to the surface. And so they lost some funding that they had, and because they were spending money irresponsibly, they didn't have any reserves, they didn't have any buffer. It was, it was like, had to make some hard decisions. And essentially the hard decision was, hey, uh, almost everybody's fired. Um, we, we can't afford to pay you anymore, except a small kind of skeleton team that we're going to keep. Um, and they took these drastic measures. Um, but again, spinning it to feel like it was this great thing that God was doing in the midst of this missions organization. It was the next phase of what was happening here. But never any admission of, I made a mistake. Never any apology, I'm so sorry that we have to do this. And so... Uh, Peter, uh, my friend, ha had to spend um, the meager savings that his family had moving back to Minnesota, um, where he moved in with his parents and said, well, we've got to figure out how to get back on our feet. Um, and so, meanwhile, the saga with this organization continued to play out, this leader deflecting at every turn, vehemently defending his innocence the whole time. Um, Peter eventually got a letter a couple months later in the mail from this leader, along with a gift. Uh, and uh, there was no apology in the letter, but it did have, it did have this phrase. It said, I, I forgive you. <laughs> Thank you. And I, and I hope you can forgive me. So it was intriguing, so interesting. No apology, but I forgive you and I hope for this situation to exist where you forgive me. Right? And so my friend uh, was seeking closure uh, for this situation and was like, man, I, I feel like I want to I I talk to him. So we called him up and said, can we have a video conversation? And um, so they, they, they scheduled it, put it on the calendar. And uh, during the course of this conversation, Peter asks this leader, he says, you mentioned that you forgive me, but I wasn't aware that I hurt you. Can you please tell me how I hurt you? And this leader didn't have, really have an answer. It's like, well, you know, I, I was just, you know, it was just kind of a, I, I probably misspoke there. I wasn't really, I wasn't, it isn't that you really hurt me, I just... I just want things to be good between us. Okay. So you also said that you hope that I can forgive you, but you never mentioned what you are asking for forgiveness for. So is there something specific that you wanted to tell me about that? What are you looking for forgiveness for? And again, the leader was like, well, I misspoke there too, probably. I don't really, there's nothing really that I'm asking for forgiveness for. Again, I'm just... I'm hoping we can be good. Are we good? We're good? So consistently, I, I say all that um, to point this out, consistently through this whole episode, this leader has, was consistent in you know, toxic and manipulative moves, never able to bring himself to admit that he had done anything wrong. Never able to actually just admit and say, Here's something I did wrong. Here's a way that I hurt you, and I'm sorry. And we see the same kind of response every day in the news. Matt mentioned earlier that we have been seeing people being accused, right? Powerful people, politicians, pastors, being accused of crime, being accused of abuse, bullying. We've, we've seen this over the past few years, right? And the knee-jerk response is almost always to defend, to justify, to minimize, right? Always the knee-jerk response. Wouldn't it be refreshing if somebody, even if they were accused falsely, 
that just said, oh my gosh, this poor person, they obviously suffered something horrible, and I'm so sorry to hear it. We should get, we should get behind this and figure out what's going on here, right? Wouldn't that be refreshing? That would be just like, what in the world? Where does that, pla- where does that person live? Like, what planet is that person from? But that's never what we hear, right? We hear defending. We hear obfuscation. We hear, I'm t- t- trying to justify the thing that I did or maybe didn't do, right? But here's the thing. It's not just toxic leaders. It's not just celebrity pastors. It's not just politicians. It's us too, isn't it? Isn't this the way that we all respond when confronted with something that we've obviously done wrong? We see it in our everyday lives. We do these things all the time. I, I do this at least weekly when Deb shares with me some way that my words have hurt her. That's usually how it goes. Hey, when you said that, it was hurtful to me. And my knee-jerk response is never, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry, honey. There's like a million things that happen in my mind and body before that, right? Can you guys relate? Well, I didn't mean it, right? I didn't mean to hurt you. Subtext, therefore your feelings are invalid, right? Deb has had to teach me that that's what that means, right? I thought I was just saying like, well, I didn't mean to hurt you, so no big deal, right? Are we good? We're good. We're good, right? We're good. But I have to learn how to do that, right? And I notice it in my body. My first response is to explain myself. No, 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 that's not what I meant. Here's what I meant. It's really hard for me to be confronted with the fact that my actions hurt somebody. It's hard. Do you guys relate? This is hard. When I realize I've used shame to try to control my kids, my first move is to justify it. Well, it's important that they learn this lesson. My kids are looking at me going, like, yep, we know that one, Dad. I make an excuse about why I was doing what I did, right? How about when we find out a friend, we've, we've gossiped about a friend and she finds out. I was, I was just joking. It's no big deal, right? Why are you so sensitive? You guys recognize that? When we lash out in anger at our little sister. I have a little sister. It's been a while since I lashed out in anger at her. But, uh, you know, we jump to blaming her right? For being annoying. Well, that's why I lashed out. Our first response is never, oh, (laughs) thank goodness you told me. I can now apologize. Do you guys recognize this in your own life? This is our MO. This is what we do. This is the condition of the human race. This is all of us. Genesis 3 is not primarily a text that says, a long time ago, this one thing happened that screwed it up for all of us. That's not the point of Genesis 3. The point of Genesis 3 isn't that it happened at a time and a place. The point of Genesis 3 is that it's always happening. This explains our existence. This explains who we are and how we are with each other, doesn't it? This is Genesis 3. We find ourselves inextricably involved in the sin and the wrong of the world. We are complicit. As much as it's fun sometimes to look at the terrible things that the celebrity pastor has done and think, I would never do that. It doesn't take a lot of self-reflection to realize, oh, I do that every day. I do that every day. But we're so afraid of admitting it and saying, I did it. That we find ourselves daily 
coming up with strategies for accusing somebody else, shifting the attention somewhere else, blaming somebody for what happened, justifying what happened, minimizing what happened, instead of just owning it. Why is that? I think Genesis 3 has some stuff to teach us about why that is. But it has good news for us as well, because despite all the ways we break communion and reject love, our Creator refuses to abandon us. Our sin does not provoke God's anger. Our sin and the shame and suffering that comes in its wake provokes God's compassion. And He moves toward us in love to rescue us, to heal us, to restore us to communion with Himself and with each other, creating humanity anew in Christ. This is how God has always been dealing with sin. And it is how we, what He will continue to do until He has reconciled all things to Himself in Christ. So let's look at the text briefly. I want to say two things about this text, and then we'll respond. The first thing is that this text shows us that the nature of our sin is not that we're bad and, are, and we want to be bad to other people. The nature of sin is, is something else. And the second thing that I want to show us from this text is that, is that God responds from the beginning in ways that maybe we hadn't imagined. The way that God responds to our sin is you typically, in the text, is not what we typically have in our, our imagination. So first of all, the nature of temptation and sin. You, you've got this passage where God has spoken to Adam, you must not, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. We'll talk more about this on Tuesday, but uh, we've had this question come up. Why would God put a tempting tree in the middle of a garden, right? Does it feel like God's sort of like asking for it in a way? You can eat from any tree except this one that you should never eat from, right? Tempting. Why does God put that tree? We'll talk more about this, but this is, this is simply the price of love. The price of God's love is our freedom. God's love is not controlling. God's love is not coercive. Therefore, it has to be possible for us to hear the invitation of God, for Him to say, here's my presence, here's my power, here's my provision. Do you want to live with me? It has to be possible for us to say, no. And God makes that possible. God doesn't coerce us into it. He invites us. And the tree represents that choice that we have. The tree represents the fact that we can say no to God, that God has created us in such a way that we can defy Him, that we can rebel against Him, that we can say no to Him. So again, we can talk more about that. But that's what it represents. And so the serpent sees an opportunity here, slithers into the garden, although maybe they weren't slithering at that time. Who knows? The part of the curse is that the serpent slithers. But the serpent asked the question, did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees? That's a sneaky way of answering, asking a question, isn't it? Sneaky way of asking a question. And uh, the woman answers, well, no, that's not what he said. He said we can eat from any tree of the garden except for this one. We can't eat it. We shouldn't even touch it because we'll die. And the serpent answers, you're not going to die. You won't die. God's lying to you. Why is God lying to you? Because he knows that when you eat from that tree, you're going to know good and evil just like he does. And he doesn't really want any rivals. He wants to hold on to that power. He doesn't want you to have it. What do you think of that? And this seed of doubt gets sown into the woman's mind, right? Hmm. 
That's interesting. I hadn't really thought of that. This is the lie. What God said to you won't happen. You can't trust him. God's not telling you everything. He's not giving you the whole picture. God really doesn't have your good in mind. You're going to have to reach out and grab that yourself. What you were created for to have life, the fullness of human life, God's not going to give that to you. You're going to have to do that for yourself. And so this lie takes root in her mind, and she starts looking at the forbidden fruit. And the text says that she noticed it was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom. This is the, this is the point here. The, the, the nature of sin is not the breaking of an arbitrary rule. It isn't that God said, all right, uh, I'm going to have to test these humans. I'm going to create some sort of weird rule that if they break it, will prove that they're bad people. So he sets up the weird rule, and then the humans break it, and God's like, oh, I knew it. And he gets mad, and he punishes them for breaking the rule. Is that a familiar story? That's sometimes how we think this story goes. That's not how this story goes. The nature of sin is not breaking an arbitrary rule. It's grasping for the fullness of life apart from God. Why? Because we don't trust He's going to give it to us. Everything that Eve, uh, she's not named Eve yet, everything the woman was, was, was looking for and the, everything she saw in the fruit is, are things that she was created for. God's presence, power, and provision are there for them, for the man and the woman. You have everything you need. Eat from any tree in the garden. Here's my presence. Let's, let's talk at the end of each day and see, and see how things went. Here's my power. I want to share it with you as, you as you create with me, as you subdue the earth. Right? God's given them all of these things. But all of a sudden, the woman thinks, no, I'm, I don't think I can trust God for those things. I need to reach out and grab for those. And so they, they represent, good for food represents the need for security. Am I going to have enough? We're made to feel like we have enough. We're made to receive from God's provision that you're going to be okay, that you're safe. We're made for that. And God desires to give it to us. But when we doubt His character, we find ourselves grasping for it, right? In different ways. We, we, we work 80 hours a week trying to build up the savings account just in case. We worry and we fret over money, right? Am I going to be okay? I don't think I can trust God. So security is there. Belonging is here too. The fruit was pleasing to the eye. This represents uh, the temptation of Jesus as well. These are, these are connected to the temptations of Jesus. We can talk more about this on Tuesday. But these are connected to the temptations of Jesus. And this is, for Jesus, is the leaping from the temple. The desire for others to see you as, as awesome, and, and people are going to want to be around you because you're so pleasing to the eye, because you're so great, right? And we doubt that God's presence is going to provide this to us, and so we run around trying to be part of the cool kids club, or we try to, try to make sure our, our boss likes us. Belonging, security, and also significance is here. That we're made for significance, we're made for sharing in God's power. But we, again, if we don't trust him to give us those things out of his goodness and his mercy, what do we do? We grasp for it. We try to, we try to prove that we're significant through our achievements. See what I did? See, I matter. 
And as we do this, again, we come by it honestly. Sin does not come out of our like horrible moral character. Most of us are not trying to hurt people. Right? Most of us aren't trying to hurt anybody. We just find it unfortunately necessary if we're going to get what we think we need that we don't trust God to provide. That's the nature of all sin. It's a simple grasping for belonging, security, significance, apart from the power, provision, and presence of God. That's sin. And that's how it shows up in all of our lives. And so it's less important to think about what rule did I break, and am I being punished for that rule? And it's more important to get under the surface and saying, what need am I trying to fill here? What's happening in me that makes me want this thing so badly, that makes me end up hurting others in the process? Okay? That's the first thing about Genesis, that this shows us that the nature of sin is a grasping for those things apart from the presence, power, and provision of God. The second thing is this, God's response to our sin isn't oftentimes how we imagine it to be. So the woman and the man, they eat the fruit, they're seeking these things, belonging, security, significance apart from God. It's devastating. Almost immediately it's devastating. They start to die right there. What happens? Their eyes are opened and they notice that they're naked. They've never noticed that before. And suddenly they notice it and they're ashamed, right? They're with each other. They've always been with each other. They've always been transparent to each other. But all of a sudden now, they experience shame, and they're like, well, I have to cover myself up. And then they hear God coming, walking in the garden. And what do they do? They don't run to him and say, something terrible's happened. Please help. Right? What do they do? They hide. They hide from God. Why? Well, remember the lie. You can't trust him. You can't trust God. That's why they hide from him. They imagine all kinds of stuff, probably. What are they imagining? Wow, he's going to be mad. (laughs) God's going to be mad. We better hide. And so they hide. They begin to die. And we'll talk more about that next week, the consequences of the fall. And they begin, to God, they, they begin to die, they're hiding, they're hiding from each other, they're hiding from God, they're experiencing this shame, they're already sort of realizing like, oh my goodness, something terrible's happened, we've done something awful. And I just want us to notice God's first move here in the text. God's first move when he realizes what's happened is to go toward them, it's to seek after them. It's not shielding his eyes from their sin. Ah, you disgust me, right? That's not it. It's not an outburst of wrath and anger. How dare you? It's not that. It's not exasperation. It's not frustration. He does not roll his eyes at them. (laughs) No. He he says this, where are you? He seeks them out. He's looking for them. He wants to be with them. He wants to take care of them. He wants to help them. He wants to serve them. And again, oftentimes we think this story is there to say, well, Adam and Eve disobeyed, 
the one rule that they were given, and therefore God punished them with death. That's not what the text says. That's not what the text says at all. God moves toward them in compassion and love, and right from the outset begins the process of rescue, healing, restoration to communion. He begins that process right away. It's not that we broke the rule and we've provoked God's anger. No. It's that we mistrusted Him and grasped for something good outside of His presence, power, and provision, and it evokes God's compassion. That's what it evokes, compassion. So we do inherit the consequences of sin, which includes death. But that's not making God mad at us. That's bringing compassion out of God towards us. He comes to us in compassion. And this is the ultimate response that we see in Christ. In the midst of all this sin, this blame, this shame, this suffering, you see the man and the woman do this, right? When God says, what's happened here? What's going on? The man says, well, it was a woman you gave me. It's her fault. She did it first, right? Side note, if anybody ever wants to tell you that the fall was because women are more gullible than men, notice that that blaming of the woman is a result of the fall, okay? Anyway, we can talk more about that Tuesday. Um, Right? So they, they blame, they accuse, and, you know, the woman does the same thing. That's a serpent. He deceived me, and then I ate. Right? But what does God do? God announces, we'll talk about more about it next week. God announces these consequences, but then he provides for his people. And then what does he say to the serpent? There's going to be enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. So there's a spiritual battle that's going to take place. And then ultimately he says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Who? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the offspring of woman, the ultimate incarnate one, the human one, is going to crush the head. Like God puts his plan of rescue and healing into place immediately. Immediately. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to rescue you from this. I'm coming for you. That's who God is to you in the midst of your sin, your shame. That's who God is for us. And this is what Jesus was doing in the temptations. He was, re, he was coming into the garden again as the human one, as the second Adam, and saying, I'm facing the same temptations to try to gain my security, my belonging, my significance from some other source than God. But where Adam failed... Christ prevailed. Christ triumphed over those powers. And now, just as in Adam all die, Paul writes in Romans, so now all who are in Christ live even more than the people who die, right? So now in Christ all live. And this is the ultimate good news for us. Despite all the ways we break communion and reject love, our Creator refuses to abandon us. Our sin does not provoke God's anger. Our sin and the shame and suffering that follow evoke God's compassion. And He moves towards us in love to rescue us, heal us, and restore us to communion with Him and with each other, creating humanity anew in Christ. God has always been responding to our sin in this way, and He will continue to do so until He has reconciled all things to Himself in Christ. Good news. Amen? Amen. Let's respond. How many of you recognize this, that when you're confronted with 
something that you've done wrong, a way that you've hurt someone else. The defensiveness comes up. It's immediate. It's important for us to recognize the reason is we're afraid of being accused. We're afraid of being condemned. But in those moments, uh, God is coming toward us, saying, where are you? Come out of hiding. Tell me what's happened. Let's, let's be real about what's happened so that I can bring you what you need. That's what God's doing. When I'm caught in sin, I'm learning to trust God's grace, saying, turn your face to me, as we heard in the song. That's in, the, in the midst of that song, that's God calling to the man and the woman. Turn your face to me. Look at me. Come, come be with me. Be real with me so that I can give you what you need. Um, recently, we were uh, talking as a family about some of the stuff that's going on in the news, and um, my son Ethan shared a story with me from when he was a, a little kid. Um, and this is, this is part of how I'm, I, th- I think, learning how to respond to this good news. Uh, from when he was a little kid, and uh, he, when he was a kid, he, he, end up, he asked me this question. <laughs> it's a funny question. He said, are women good at anything? <laughs> and, uh, and, so, and he was telling me, like, the reason he was asking me the question was he had just been interested in math and science, and he had just noticed as a little kid that a lot of men are sort of leaders in these fields and not a lot of women are in those fields, right? So again, a purely innocent question for a little, little boy to ask, like, you know, the things I care about, men seem to be doing. So do, are women good at anything? So anyway, so he shared that question with me, and then he said, almost as a passing comment, he says, and you got really mad at me for saying that. And immediately when he said that, and he wasn't even talking about, he wasn't trying to bring anything to me, he was just saying, like, you got mad at me because you care about women. That was kind of his point. But immediately I felt ashamed. Because I was like, oh my gosh. I got mad at it. He was just asking an innocent question. And I offloaded my shame onto him in that moment. Yeah? I offloaded my shame onto him. Saying, never ask that question. That's terrible. So I, I felt that in the moment. Uh, and it, it's easy to kind of just hope that we don't have to talk about that anymore, right? <laughs> like, okay, are we done talking about that? Great. So I can feel better? Great. But what I'm learning how to do is, is pay attention to it and say, okay, what's going on there in me? What's going on in me that I feel ashamed that I did that? So uh, I wrote him a letter a few days later. I wrote him a little note. And I just said, hey, I know you weren't sharing this because you were trying to make me feel bad or you were trying to talk about that. You were just sharing this because you were sharing it, but I recognize that my anger hurt you in that moment, and I'm sorry. And uh, if you ever want to talk to me about other ways that my anger has hurt you, I, I want to talk about it. We can talk about it. Learning to trust that there's grace for me, you know, it's not condemnation, there's not punishment, that God's presence, power, and provision are there for me. So I want to invite us all into that, okay? Uh, there's a prayer in your booklet. This is, this is why we confess our sins before we come to the table. It's a, it's, a, it's a punctuating point to say, is there anything I need to be real with God about? This is what we do in our DNA groups. This is, this is why we do this. But there's a prayer in your booklet that uh, I'd like to... I'd like for us to pray together. Um, And you guys don't have to own all your sins out loud. 
uh, with each other. But uh, the prayer goes like this. Creator God, in the midst of my sin and shame, thank you for moving toward me in love to rescue, heal, and restore me to communion. I turn my face toward you today to receive your, and you can say presence, power, provision, or anything else that you have a sense that you need. Healing, forgiveness. Whatever the Lord is here to give you, just proclaim today in this prayer that you receive it, you turn your face towards him and you receive it today. Okay? Let's pray together. Creator God, in the midst of my sin and shame, thank you for moving toward me in love to rescue, heal, and restore me to communion. I turn my face toward you today to receive your forgiveness. Lord, in your mercy.